to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Mark, chapter 15, verse 20, as we follow along with today's lesson. There was in the church of Antioch, Acts chapter 13, a man who had a prominent place in the church in Antioch whose name was Simeon, which is another name for Simon, and it said they called him Niger, which uh, means of swarthy complexion, African. And being from Cyrene, very possible that in Acts, uh, the 13th chapter, the Simeon that we have there is the Simon of Mark, uh, that he was converted and was known then later to the church. So he was passing by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And they brought him unto the place called Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of the skull. Now, it could be called the place of the skull because of uh, the appearance of the uh, hillside. And, of course, in Jerusalem today, uh, across from what they call Solomon's quarries, halfway between uh, Herod's gate and the gate, uh, Damascus gate, standing on the wall, looking across over the top of the bus station, uh, you see the atop of Mount Moriah, and you see on the side uh, a, uh, the caves that form uh, the sort of a, to look like a skull, the hollow sockets of the eyes and the bridge of the nose, uh, next to the cave that they call Jeremiah's Grotto. Or it could be that There were just a lot of skulls that it was the place of crucifixion and there were just a lot of skulls around because as a rule, when a person was crucified, they did not bury the body but just took it from the cross and they allowed the vulture and the scavenger dogs to just eat it and left the skeleton there. So it could be that there were just a bunch of skulls around there and that's where it got the name, the place of the skull. There they offered him to drink wine that was mingled with myrrh, but he did not receive it. Now, the, the wine mingled with myrrh was sort of an anesthesia. It was sort of to uh, numb them so that they would not feel the pain. Actually, there was a group of women in Jerusalem who felt sorry for those that were being crucified, and they formed sort of a guild, and they would make up this 
concoction uh, to give uh, to the people who were to be crucified uh, to sort of put them into a altered state of consciousness uh, so that they would not uh, feel so intensely uh, the suffering and the pain of hanging there on the cross. But they offered it to Jesus and he did not take it. He refused uh, this anesthesia. And when they had crucified him, now once they had, they, they, the cross was, they would lie it on the ground and then uh, the prisoner would be uh, placed on it and the hands on the crossbar, they would nail the hands and then there was this uh, little uh, wooden step upon which he would stand and uh, uh, loosely tied and there they would hang until they died as they were hanging there after a period of time uh, as your muscles begin to give way your body begins to go out of joint and and as it does there's the excruciating pain your body hanging there and gravity beginning to take its toll and and begins to slip out of joints with excruciating pain and of course it's described in psalm uh 22 my uh the body being out of joints. And um, death usually came by suffocation. Uh, after the muscles would give way, you'd just hang there and you would finally just couldn't breathe anymore. Death by suffocation. So uh, they would strip the prisoner of his clothes and the common custom was just to divide the clothes between the four executing soldiers. But with Jesus, they divided his garments, but for his robe. Now, his robe was a special robe, no doubt made by one of the women who accompanied him. It was without seam, woven from top to bottom. And they said, this is too nice to just tear into four parts. Why don't we cast lots for this? And so they parted his garments among them, but for his vesture they cast lots. And thus was Psalm 22, verse 18, fulfilled. And it was the third hour, that was nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him or when he was placed upright there on Golgotha. And the superscription of the accusation that was written over the top, they would take the sign, the guy would carry it through the street, and then they would nail it at the top of the cross uh, so that as he was hanging there, they would all see the crime that he was accused of or guilty of. was written over it, the king of the Jews. And they crucified with him two thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And so Isaiah 53, 12 was fulfilled. He was numbered with the transgressors there in his death. And the scripture was fulfilled, Mark tells us that, which saith he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads. And now you can get a picture of these people just screaming out as he was hanging there, shaking their heads as they shouted their filth and their taunts. 
And they said, Oh, thou that destroyest the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, when they asked Jesus for a sign, he said, destroy this temple and I will be rebuild it in three days. And he said, we've been you know, building this thing for 46. You say you're going to rebuild it in three days. And Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. But they're bringing up this again. They're saying, hey, you that will destroy the temple and build it, come on down, save yourself. Likewise, also the chief priest, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. How true that is. You see, he cannot save himself if he is to save others. If Jesus would have saved himself, he would not be able to save you. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. I'm sure that the chief priest didn't realize how accurate was his statement that he was making. Now, Jesus could have come down. We know that. He told Peter, don't you realize I could call for 10,000 angels to deliver me? But the cup that the Father has given me to drink, shall I not drink it? Thus, in staying there, hanging there on the cross, he proved the extent of God's love for you. God was willing to go all the way in order to redeem your soul from sin. Never, ever should you question or doubt God's love for you. If ever you begin to question it, look back at the cross. And there God commended his love or displayed his love towards you in that while you were still in your sins, Christ was dying for you. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So never ever question God's love. For if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more then shall he not freely give us all things? And so here we see God's love being demonstrated in a very powerful way. As Jesus was hanging there, taking all of this abuse while he hung there on the cross. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, they were saying, the scribes were saying, that we may see and believe. And even those two that were crucified with him reviled him. Now Luke tells us that later on, one of the two had a change of heart. And when the first one continued with the mockery, he said, don't you fear God, seeing we're in the same boat as this fellow? We are here because we deserve to be here, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? You remember that story? We'll get it when we move into Luke's gospel next. Now, when the sixth hour or noontime had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, this could not be explained as an eclipse of the sun inasmuch as 
The Passover takes place at full moon, and it's impossible to have a total eclipse during full moon uh, because, as you know very well, at full moon, it comes up as the sun is going down. And the total eclipse is caused when the moon passes in front of the sun. And it creates then the, the shadow and the darkness uh, on the earth at that point where, uh, according to the time of the year, uh, where it gets the full coverage. But um, impossible during uh, a full moon so that you have to explain this phenomena of the darkness in another way than eclipse. In Amos, a very interesting prophecy, chapter 8, verse 9, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth on a clear day. So uh, it, it happened on a clear day. The earth was darkened. And I will turn your feast. Now, this, remember, took place on the day of the feast of Passover, which was a, a feast of great rejoicing because they were rejoicing over God's delivering their fathers out of the Egyptian bondage but I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins. The sackcloth was usually worn at, at death. And I will make it as the mourning of an only son. I find that very significant. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And the end thereof is a bitter day. Fascinating prophecy of Amos. And here we see the fulfillment as from the sixth hour or noon until the ninth hour when Jesus dismissed his spirit, darkness over the whole land. And at the ninth hour, three hours of darkness, it was as though nature wouldn't look at this horrible scene. Just, it, was, it was just man's sin magnified and exemplified in the death of Jesus Christ. The first sin was suicide of sorts because God had said to Adam that you're not to eat of the fruit of that tree for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will, you will bring a death sentence upon you. And thus in eating, he was committing suicide. The second recorded sin in the Bible is fratricide. When Cain killed his brother Abel. This is the sin of deicide. Man attempting to kill God. Now, man has not ceased that attempt. 
There are many men today who are still seeking to kill God. They're seeking to kill people's faith in God. They have set themselves against God and they are determined to destroy the idea of God, the concept of God. And unfortunately, they have gained positions of prominence and power in our educational system, in our judicial system, and thus are becoming quite effective in their attempt to eradicate God out of society, out of our national life. And they are working always, constantly, trying to destroy God. Here it was in the crucifixion of Jesus, trying to destroy God. And it continues to the present day. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now we know that this is the first line of Psalm 22. Now often, when a rabbi was teaching, he would give the first line of the psalm because they were familiar with the psalms. And all you had to do is give the first line and then that, that psalm would go through the minds of the people. And it could be that Jesus is calling attention to his disciples, more or less go back and read Psalm 22. And if they would go back and read Psalm 22, they would understand what was going on. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's not out of control. God is still in control. So many times the events of our life, we feel that, you know, things are out of control. Not so. God is in control. God rules. And though the disciples probably felt that this is horrible, man's ruling over God, yet Go home and read Psalm 22 and you'll find that this is part of God's determined counsel. This is the plan of God to reveal his love to the world. It is through the death of Jesus that salvation will come to all. And there will be a day that will come when all will acknowledge him as Lord. The end of the psalm goes on that, that the whole world will, even those that are down in the grave, will acknowledge him as is prophesied later again in Isaiah, but spoken of by Paul, where he said, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and thus, uh, it's all a part of God's plan. Go home, read it. But yet, as you interpret it, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Going on in the psalm, why art thou so far from the cry of my roaring? I cry in the uh, daytime, and thou hearest not in the night season, and am not silent. But then in verse 3, he gives the reason why he was forsaken. For thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises 
of thy people Israel. The holiness of God necessitated the break of fellowship when God laid on him the iniquities of us all. At that moment, God placed upon Jesus your sin, my sin, the sins of the world. And as Isaiah cried out, and God laid on him the iniquities of us all, and God cried for the transgression of my people, was he smitten. So in bearing our sins, when God placed upon him our sin, he then suffered the consequence of sin, which is separation from the Father. God's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from God. That's always the effect of sin, separation from God. And when he took our sin, he was separated from the Father. And thus the cry, and what a plaintive cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, you see, he had told his disciples, all of you are going to forsake me because you're all going to be offended and you're all going to forsake me. Because the scripture says, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so he knew and expected them to forsake him. But now even forsaken of the father alone, he paid the price to redeem you from your sin. Oh, what a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Jesus. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. Willing to be separated from the Father for that moment that I would not have to be separated forever. Isn't that glorious? I don't have to be separated from God now because Jesus bore my sin, separated from God for me. Some of them that stood by when they heard it, they said, look, he's calling for Elias. Now, you see, they were Roman soldiers. They did not know the Hebrew language. They did not know that the Eloi, Eloi was my God, my God. And, and they thought he, they had heard of Elijah. And, and so they thought he's crying for Elijah. It, it is possible that they thought that he had gone into a delirium into sort of a madness. And so one ran and filled the sponge with vinegar and put it to his lips. And Psalm 69, 21 was fulfilled that in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. And of course, we are told in the other gospels that along with this cry, he did cry, I thirst. And so one filled the sponge with vinegar, put it to his lips, and the other said, no, 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 wait, let's see, maybe, you know, let's see if Elijah will come and help him out here. Maybe we're going to have a drama here, you know. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Now, the other Gospels uh, tell us that what he cried, he cried, it is finished. In the Greek, it's just one word, finished. Tell us, die. It's finished. Redemption of man. Cry with a loud voice. Finished. And he gave up the ghost, or as the other gospel said, he dismissed his spirit. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And 
The veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Significant. It was God who tore the thing. God tore it. And we are told in the other Gospels there was a great earthquake. The rocks were actually torn in the earthquake. And in the earthquake, this veil of the temple, this heavy, heavy veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, from the place of God's presence, the place where man was not allowed to come into the presence of a holy God, Only the high priest could come and then only one day in the year and then only after many sacrifices. And then with a rope tied around his foot in case the bells on the hem of his garment would quit tingling, they would know that he was dead, that there was something wrong with the sacrifices. And so they had a rope on his foot so they could pull him out. They they couldn't even go in to get him out. And so the rope on his... And that would make you sort of... Uh, I suppose tenuous in going in, you know, the rope on your foot, you just hope everything's all right, you know. Uh, Did I dot the I's and cross the T's, you know, and is everything perfect here? Uh, You're coming into the presence of God. But you see, common man couldn't do that. The priest would go in for the people. But now God is saying, look, Entrance is available for all men. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace or throne of mercy that we might find grace in the time of need. And so we have access now unto God through Jesus Christ. One God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And he prepared the way that leads to God's abode. It's a way marked by love, but it leads us home to God. And so the temple, I love that, that God just ripped it and said, hey, come on in. (laughs) The way is now made. The way has been prepared through Jesus Christ. Your sins are not just covered. Now they're put away. The Old Testament, they made the kofar, the covering for sin. But now through Jesus Christ, sins put away. And thus access unto the Father by all who will come through Jesus Christ. And so when the centurion, which stood over against him, that was more or less overseeing the whole crucifixion, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on afar off. Now, uh, John tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was also with the women, with Mary Magdalene and uh, another Mary. Here's Mary, the mother of James, the lesson of Joseph, and also Salome. And, And these women that had followed him from Galilee, these women that had traveled around with the disciples, who had prepared the meals and had just sort of... uh, been a part, an intimate, integral part of the group, standing there watching, who also, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. So there were quite a few of the women standing afar off. Mary, his mother, and Mary Magdalene were standing close enough that Jesus could speak to them from the cross. 
And uh, John, the beloved disciple, was there nearby too because Jesus spoke to John and sort of committed to John the keeping of his mother Mary. Uh, That's recorded for us in the Gospel of John. We'll get that later. Now when the even was come, he died at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now it's necessary that he be buried before 6 o'clock because the next day was the Sabbath day and it was the great day of the feast. It was the first day of unleavened bread, which was a Sabbath day and again a, a holy day. Uh, you had a double Sabbath on this week. And so... Um, the preparation. They had to have everything prepared by 6 o'clock in the evening. The Sabbath day begins, and, and you can't do anything beyond that. So uh, it was evening, the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. And Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which was also waiting for the kingdom of God, he came and he went boldly to Pilate and craved or he begged for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate didn't know if he was already dead. He was surprised to hear that he was already dead. He marveled uh, that uh, Joseph was there. Uh, is, he, is he dead already? And so he called unto him the centurion, and he asked him uh, if he had been dead for any length of time. And when the centurion confirmed that, yes, Jesus was actually dead, he gave the body to Joseph, and he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of rock, and he rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher, and then Isaiah 53, 9 was filled, where he made uh, his grave... uh, uh, he made his death with the uh, oh, grave with the uh, with the rich, and so Joseph of Arimathea burying Christ in his tomb. Uh, today, uh, the garden tomb is one of the uh, most beautiful sights, in my estimation, in the Holy Land. Uh, whether or not that is the actual tomb is is just a matter of of, of speculation, but it surely. Uh, fits the description and is a, is a uh, marvelous experience uh, to see this tomb. And surely it was no doubt one, if this is not the one similar to this, where Joseph buried Jesus, a tomb that was hewn out of the rock. And of course, you find a lot of them uh, around Jerusalem, and you find the rolling stones in front of them. Uh, it's, it's, there are several of them, the king's tomb, uh, and also over near King David Hotel, what they call Herod's tomb, uh, and uh, these tombs that are hewn out of the rock. Um, someone said, how in the world uh, could this man, you know, it, 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 very costly, only the wealthy really were entombed. Uh, the others were just put in uh, sarcophagus, uh, these flesh-eating coffins. Only the wealthy were buried in tombs, and uh, how is it that a guy would go to all of the expense? And there in the garden tomb, uh, there is a cistern for the water to keep the garden and, and a lot of elaborate expense. How, how could he just, doing that all to prepare a tomb for himself, how, how could he just give it over to another man? And someone said, well, 
It was only for the weekend, you know, so. <laughs> We're told in the close that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, followed. They, they followed. They knew where the tomb was. So that, that sets the stage for uh, the next chapter, the resurrection of Jesus. Let's turn in our Bibles now to Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. We've come now to the end of the Gospel of Mark. Next week we start the book of Luke. As we get into the 16th chapter of Mark, it should be acknowledged that some have put a question mark or a doubt on the last portion of this chapter beginning with verse 9 to the end. And the reason for the doubt or the questioning as to the accuracy or the authenticity of this portion of the chapter is because in two of the oldest manuscripts, this portion is deleted. That is the manuscript known as the Sinaiticus and the other manuscript known as the Vaticanus. Back in the middle of the 1800s, a man by the name of Tischendorf was, was down at the um, St. Catherine's Monastery in the uh, area of the Sinai. And he discovered there in the monastery this ancient vellum that was actually being used more or less for kindling. And in examining it, realized that it was an old copy of the scriptures, perhaps one of the oldest copies extant as far as the uh, the amount of the text that was there. And upon the announcement of this discovery in the Vatican, shortly afterwards, they pulled out this ancient manuscript from the Vatican, which is known as uh, the B manuscript. The Codex Sinaiticus is called the Aleph. And uh, they uh, found that these manuscripts were quite similar not completely similar. There are differences in the two manuscripts themselves. And when they were going to revise the Bible, the two men who had a great deal to do with the revision were Westcott and Hort. They were Greek scholars, and they put together a Greek text, which relied heavily upon the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, these two ancient texts. It should be noted that these texts do date back in the year 420, 30, somewhere in there, uh, as best they can determine. Because in these two texts, the last portion of Mark's gospel is deleted, they felt that uh, it was necessary in the revised text to delete it, or at least to make notations that it was not found in some of the oldest manuscripts. And you will find many notes like this 
in many of your modern translations. Many times it's called the oldest manuscripts, and sometimes they even have the audacity to call them the best manuscripts. I say audacity because there's a real challenge as to really how good these manuscripts really are. Let me read what some of the scholars at that time, mainly Shrivener and Dean Burgeon, had to say concerning the Codex Sinaiticus, which they put great credence upon. It says, since the documents were first inscribed, they were made subject to no less than 10 different attempts of revision and correction. That is, places that were crossed out and revisers went through, 10 different revisers went through and made changes, many of them as late as the 6th to the 8th century. Dr. Shrivener published in 1864 a full collation of the Codex Sinaiticus with the explanatory introduction in which he states, among the other facts of interest, is that the Codex is covered with such alterations. Alterations that were obviously of a correctional character. So brought in by at least 10 different revisers, some of them systematically spread over every page Others occasional or limited to separate portions of the manuscript. Many of these being contemporaneous with the first writer, for the greater part belonging to the 6th to the 7th century. We are sure that every intelligent reader will perceive, and with little effort, the immense significance of, the feat of this feature of the Sinaitic Codex. Here is a documentation which the revisers have esteemed and solely, they've, received, they've esteemed the Codex Sinaiticus, but solely because of its antiquity, to be so pure that it should be taken as the standard whereby all other copies of the Scriptures are to be tested and corrected. Uh, such is the estimate of certain scholars of the 19th century, but it bears upon its face the proof that those in whose possession it had been for, from the very first and for some hundreds of years thereafter esteemed it to be so impure as to require corrections in every part. Um, the Bible has been subject to what is called higher criticism. Those who come to the Bible with a presupposition that it is like any other ancient text and to be studied like any other ancient text is not really the inspired word of God and they seek to find fault and they seek to find contradictions and proofs that the Bible is not really inspired by God and inerrant. These men have been hammering at the Bible for years. And from this school of higher critics come such men as Westcott and Hort, who, using the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus, made their own Greek text upon which the Revised Version and practically every other modern version has been taken. There are two basic families of 
text, and that is the Alexandrian school from which the Vaticanists and the uh, Sinaiticists have come with the that family of text. And then there is, of course, the received text that uh, encompasses the majority of the text. Now, it should be noted that the majority of the text has this latter portion of Mark in it. It is only the two manuscripts that we have mentioned earlier that do not have the last portion of Mark's gospel. It is interesting, however, that this last portion of Mark's gospel is quoted by many of the early church fathers who died long before Codex Sinaiticus was ever copied. Back in uh, the, actually, uh, in the early years of, of church history, Irenaeus, who lived from 140 to 202, He quotes from this last portion of Mark's gospel. Now, if you are using the Codex Sinaiticus primarily because it's the oldest document, and you say, because it's the oldest, it's probably the most correct, then you have to explain what document was Irenaeus quoting from 200 years before this was ever written. And Hippolytus, who also lived from 170 to 235, quotes from this last portion of Mark's gospel. Certainly, they were quoting from earlier manuscripts. So this idea that because of its antiquity that it has to be correct is sort of blown out of the window because uh, you have uh, Bible uh, teachers quoting from this last portion of Mark's gospel. So let me read you what Dean Burgeon said concerning uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. He is not very um, high on it, to say the least. He speaks of the impurity of the Codex Sinaiticus. In every part, it was fully recognized by those who were best acquainted with it. There are other characteristics of this old manuscript which have to be taken into consideration if a correct estimate of its evidential value is to be reached. Thus, there is internal evidence that lead to the conclusion that this was the work of a scribe who was singularly careless or incompetent or both. In this manuscript, the arrangement of the lines is peculiar there being four columns on each page and each line containing about 12 letters, all of them capitals that are run together. In other words, there's no attempt to separate the words, just all of the letters run together in all capitals. And there is no attempt to end a word at the end of a line for even words having only two letters, such as N and ek are split in the middle, the last letter being carried over to the beginning of the new line. I mean, it's really uh, a very peculiar text, to say the least. 
though there was ample room for it on the preceding line. And this and other peculiarities give us the idea that the char- of the character and the competence of the scribe, probably done by some kindergartner. <laughs> but more than that, Dr. Shrivner says, this manuscript must have been derived from uh, one in which the lines were similarly divided since the writer occasionally omits just the number of letters which would suffice to fill a line. In other words, he omitted whole lines and there were enough letters to fill that line, but they were just omitted. And that to the utter ruin of the sense, and, and that is the way they wrote it, it just doesn't make sense at all with the omission of that line. Uh, as if his eye had uh, just sort of wandered to the line that was immediately below. Dr. Shrivner states that instances where complete lines are omitted and others where the copy is passed in the middle of a line to the corresponding portion of the line below. So left off the end and just and the first portion of the next line. From this, it is evident that the work of copying was done by a scribe who was both heedless and incompetent. A careful copyist would not have made the above or other mistakes so frequently, and only the most incompetent would have failed to notice upon reading over the page to correct the omissions which utterly destroyed the sense. In other words, had he bothered to even read over what he had written, he would have realized that he missed that line and he he would have inserted it to fill in so that it would make sense. And so speaking of the character of the two oldest manuscripts, Dean Burgeon says, the impurity of the text exhibited by these codices is not a question of opinion, but a fact. In the Gospels alone, Codex B, that is the Vaticanus, leaves out words or whole clauses no less than 1,491 times. It bears traces of careless transcription on every page. Codex Sinaiticus abounds with errors of the eye and the pen to an extent not indeed unparalleled, but happily rather unusual in documents of first-rate importance. On many occasions, 10, 20, 30, 40 words are dropped through very carelessness. Letters and words, even whole sentences, are frequently written twice over or begun and immediately canceled while that gross blunder whereby a clause is omitted because it happens to end with the same words as the clause preceding occurs no less than 115 times in the New Testament. And so uh, the Codex Vaticanus differs from the received text in the following particulars. It, admits at, it omits at least 2,877 words. It adds 536 words. It substitutes 935 words, and it transposes 2,098 words, and it modifies 1,132, making a total of 7,578 verbal divergences. But the Sinaitic is even worse. Its total divergences are over 9,000. So... When you read some of the most ancient manuscripts, as, as they have been notated in many of the Bibles, and those that skip the last part of Mark 
or those that put it in. So often put, this portion is omitted in some of the most ancient manuscripts. Those manuscripts are two, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, of which we've just read to you uh, how sloppily they were done. So that uh, to omit it, it doesn't really finish the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It uh, le- Listen to the last verse of, uh, that is eight, before they get to this which was omitted uh, in these two manuscripts. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they were troubled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Isn't that a great place to leave the story? Running away afraid, afraid to talk about it, you know, end of story. And we don't even have the proofs of the resurrection yet. We don't have Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene and and all. That just, it cuts it off right there. Obviously, no place to cut off the story. Uh, And so, uh, don't be (laughs) deceived into thinking that when someone says, oh, some of the finest manuscripts that we have, Codex Sinaiticus, one of the lousiest manuscripts we have. And to put a lot of credence on it is is just sheer ignorance or deliberate deception. It is a poor, poor manuscript. And thus to put so much credence in it, as was done by Westcott and Hort, you have to look for other motives. Now, I do not buy into the New Age theory uh, that it was uh, a part of the New Age plot. I think that the value of that book, New Age Versions, is not in trying to discover a conspiracy of New Agers uh, to change the Bible, Uh, but I think the value of that book is the comparison of text side by side so that you can see the changes that have been made in the modern translations versus the King James. It should be noted that the King James Version was a translation of the received text or the Textus Receptus, as was, of course, Martin Luther's translation, Wycliffe's, and and all of these translations come from the received text, that is, what is also known as the majority of text. You see, where this is deleted in two manuscripts, it is included in over a thousand manuscripts. So you have a vote of a thousand to two. Uh, But uh, for some reason, they've put greater credence on the two than the other thousand that have come over to us from a variety of sources all agreeing together and coming out at the end in agreement uh, against these two of which, as we pointed out, in one over 7,000 changes and the other over 9,000 changes. So with that, let's take a look at what Mark has to say. And with the, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, oh, one, one more thing. Uh, Uh, This fellow, Dean Burgeon, a tremendous scholar, uh, has written a book 
called the last 12 verses of Mark. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Mark in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the Saturday Sabbath. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Mark 15 through 16 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of the Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, again, we're so grateful for your love so rich, so full, so complete. And we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene. And we wonder how he could love us, sinners, condemned, unclean. Oh, how marvelous, how wonderful your marvelous love for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for taking our place, dying in our stead, that you might give us life, eternal life. And Lord, as we look at the question, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the King of the Jews, may we this day Crown him the Lord of life, the Lamb upon the throne. And may we bow our knee before him and kiss the scepter as we pledge our hearts, our lives, our all in allegiance unto him. In Jesus' name we pray. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. For years, Pastor Chuck was asked thousands of questions. This new guy that my mom married, he thinks that the Christian beliefs are foolish, and I was wondering if that's going to like affect my mom's walk. I'm a Christian. I'm trying to fight the addiction of smoking, and are those things going to keep me from going in the rapture? Is it okay to use your tithes and give it to someone who's going on a mission trip instead of giving it directly to church? 
The Word for Today is pleased to present an ebook called Biblical Counseling by Chuck Smith, listing over 200 topics that include Pastor Chuck's commentary and the scripture references he used. Topics include addiction, business relationships, depression, lawsuits, sexuality, training children, and so much more. To download the Biblical Counseling ebook by Chuck Smith, visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link provided. Or you can call 1-800-272-9673.